Hello, friends. It's been a minute, but we are back with the Our Weekly Highlights podcast, our first edition for the year 2023. My name is Eric Nance, and as always, I am delighted that you joined us on wherever you're listening from around the world. And we can't kick off a new year of podcast episodes without my great co-host, Mike Thomas. Mike, we haven't chatted in quite a few weeks. How have you been, my friend? I've been great. I have been itching to uh, to get back on the on the mic with you. It's exciting. It was nice to have a couple of weeks off, but it's exciting to be diving back into our weekly and catching up on everything that I've missed the last couple of weeks and hopefully helping some others out there catch up as well. Yes, you and me both. I've missed this immensely. I was a little bit down for the count for a few weeks there at the end of the and then the end of December. So we didn't have an episode when I was hoping to have because if you don't have a voice, you can't really do a podcast. So <laughs> luckily, as you can hear, I have it back and I'm back to normal. So we're going to kick things off the right way here. And in fact, this episode is looking at the very last issue of 2022, week 52. And it's been curated by Kelly Bodwin, great uh, curator for our team. I had the pleasure of meeting her at our studio conf. Great person. She does some great work. We've highlighted before on this very podcast. But as always, she had tremendous help from our our weekly team members, especially during a holiday break and contributors like all of you around the world. Now, we'll get into this a little bit, but Mike, we'll have some listener feedback about shiny stuff later in the episode. But I don't know about you. I, I tend to get a lot of common questions about how to do things in shiny. You mind sharing me maybe what a common question you might get sometimes about how to do something in shiny by chance? Listener feedback. People listen to this. It's amazing, isn't it? We actually have an audience. (laughs) Um, So common things that I'm trying to do in Shiny. I would say probably one of the simplest things you could do is just uh, create, render some sort of a a plot or a table on the server side and try to display that uh, in the UI. Yeah, that's one of the bread and butters. And a common question might be, like you just said, how do we get a table inside? Well, Shiny is definitely, as you and I both know, a very powerful framework for building interactive web apps. And to create a table in a Shiny app, you can use the DT package. It can wrap a data frame in a data table function. And it's a very easy to set up, a very quick snippet of just using a data table output in your UI. And on the server side, just rendering a, a data table itself with a data frame. And then if you want to customize the appearance of that, You can use the various options in the data table function to do so, maybe like giving different column names or maybe more options like the table width or how it paginates. That answer actually didn't come from me. That came from ChatGPT, folks. So that's the subject of our first highlight. And if anything else, that wows me already that a response to a simple question, albeit doesn't seem simple to a lot of chat bots out there was very coherent and it looked like it was written by a human. So I paraphrase some of that response, but it is a legit response that I got from, from chat GPT. So what are we talking about here? Well, it was one of the biggest developments in the AI and ML space, just as 2022 was wrapping up where open AI released what they call a preview research release of ChatGPT, which is the artificial intelligence conversational interface 
to language models that has quickly grabbed mainstream attention. In fact, everywhere I turn online, there's at least someone talking about or sharing a post about how they used it. And now it's kind of a big deal, I would say. Now, provided that you have an account on OpenAI, you can interact with ChatGPT in a simple web page to ask your question like I just did about that shiny table. And unlike a basic chatbot, you can also ask or provide clarifying information after that first answer and it is intelligent enough to keep the dialogue going effectively. I would say ChatGPT got off the ground running pretty quickly because there were over a million users giving this a spin within the first week of its release. So that's a lot of data for it to train on already. And we've seen a wide variety of questions asked with varying levels of difficulty. Now, one of those categories that ChatGPT has gained some pretty positive attention is in the general programming and software development space. And we've seen examples shared on social media like Twitter of entire HTML and CSS answers that could actually work and be plugged into any modern website. Very interesting stuff. Remember, this is the R Weekly Highlights podcast. We're not an AI podcast. We talk about R, right? Well, much like any web technology, you can also interact with ChatGPT via its RESTful API, which powers the new R package GPT tools, authored by research scientist James Wade for our first highlight today. Now, I really like James' approach to this initial release, which is on GitHub, because it's focusing on a few key tasks that are involved with R package development. Taking an approach, I would say it's a hybrid of things like GitHub's Copilot. The GPT tools package lets you highlight sections of your R script that you have open to maybe it's a function or iterative code, and it lets you add, say, comments to it very quickly that actually makes sense, converting a set of normal R code into a function, maybe adding R oxygen tags to a function if you're developing this in a package, and even help you write a unit test for a selected function. That's all in this initial release of GPT tools. That's pretty neat if I say so myself. Now, all of this is accomplished by exposing very convenient RStudio add-ins, which once you select the code you wanna highlight in your editor, you just select the particular add-in associated with, say, getting comments or getting those R oxygen tags, and then it takes that snippet alongside a pre-baked prompt that would be added via the API to JADGPT, and then it's going to get that response back. That response is going to contain a code snippet if you were doing this in the web UI itself. Well, the package is smart enough to take that snippet and then modify your code in place to add that new feature or that new set of comments. So with, a, with any package that could interface with this chat GPT service, you could go in so many different directions. So I really like James' approach to kind of focus on some key development enhancements. And then let's see where the future takes us, where the package could, again, be easily extended with additional endpoints or additional ways to interact with chat GPT itself. So again, it's great that the R user community now can have the great enhancements that ChatGPT can potentially offer on the convenience of your RStudio window. Heck, this could even work in VS Code as well. I mean, you can use it anywhere. 
So I'm really excited to see where this takes us. As for Chad GPT itself, I'm both optimistic and a little wary of what might happen because this is shaping up to be one of the most transformative developments in the tech sector probably of the year and we're just getting started. Well, there's certainly no lack of buzz around chat GPT lately. And I, I guess looking back over the past maybe 12, 18, 24 months, right? We've had some other GPT three, was it something like that? Yes. We've had some other large language models that have sort of uh, gotten close, but not uh, provided the power, it seems, that ChatGPT has. They were sort of paving the way for ChatGPT. I've been having, I guess, a little bit of a hard time figuring out where and how ChatGPT could benefit me as a data scientist, I guess, besides just asking it to write all of my scripts, which I, I haven't done yet. You know, I, I don't want it to give me the wrong answer or, or some code snippet that I just sort of carelessly copy and paste into my own script. But I, I think there is probably a balance there somewhere. I'm starting to see some places where chat GPT and these large language models could help. And I'm going to touch on that in a minute. But, uh, you know, you and I were talking about this pre-show a little bit. But the, the impact that something like ChatGPT has on education just blows my mind when I think about how I wrote papers and how I learned when I was in elementary and middle school and high school and, and college even. Um, so I, I saw somebody who, who made a model recently to determine if a paper was written with ChatGPT or not. So I think there's probably going to be a lot of tools like that coming out as well to sort of provide checks and balances maybe against chat GPT, especially when it comes to education, because the way that, that kids and even young adults are going to be learning um, in the future, I guess, to me, just looks wildly different than the way that you and I probably learned, Eric, which uh, I, I can't even wrap my mind around the implications there. But uh, James's is package uh, and accompanying add-in that comes courtesy of the package makes it really easy to leverage ChatGPT, and it, it really helped me wrap my mind around some uh, utilities that might be really useful for us as you know day-to-day R developers. Um, I don't know if you mentioned this, Eric, but you will need an API key from ChatGPT, which I believe is free to get. It's free, it free for to- now, at least. Yep. <laughs> free for now. Um, yeah, that's a whole other topic of conversation with the, the all, all that's going on from a business perspective with, with OpenAI and ChatGPT. Um, and I guess one other question for you, because you've used it and I haven't used it yet. Is there a way to provide ChatGPT with feedback on whether or not the response it gave was correct or useful? Yes, there is. So that was one of the, I think, the biggest reasons I wanted to release it now, knowing that it's going to have a non-negligible amount of times that might give a wrong answer to a question. So when you get a response back, you can immediately give it even just a quick little thumbs up or thumbs down, and then you can have a conversation with it to actually say why you think that answer is inappropriate or not quite addressing your particular question. And they're taking that feedback, and there are other ways to submit feedback directly to OpenAI themselves, um, not just through ChatGPT itself. But they're trying to make it easy for people to provide feedback. And I've certainly seen situations where the answer coming back is written really well. Like it seems plausible, but it is just completely off base. So they're 
your mileage will vary, especially in this early stage of it. Yeah, it's so funny. I think I've seen the exact same thing where it'll provide the wrong answer. And then the user will say, uh, that answer is wrong. Can you try again? And then it might provide the right answer the second time. Exactly. So again, wrapping my mind around how that works on the back end of, of this model is, I guess, from somebody who doesn't do any large language modeling, it's very different than the typical statistical predictive models that that maybe you or I make on a day-to-day basis where you you put the same inputs in, you're going to get the same output or or roughly the same output, right? Um, I guess I'll just close maybe with one anecdote um, about how we recently used it at, at Catchbrook. We're building a Shiny app and we needed some custom JavaScript for our Reactable uh, React table package, interactive data table, to do some some nifty weighted average summarization on the fly, because um, this was sort of nested nested data in a table. And one of our staff who, who was tasked with this decided that he'd go about doing this by asking ChatGPT for the JavaScript code to accomplish this. And it was way faster than us trying to you know Google forever and piece together a bunch of different Stack Overflow posts. And the code that it came back with immediately works perfectly. It works great. It's already been pushed to prod. So um, that's that. That's sort of been one of the things that's been changing my mind here. A couple of uh, examples of how this could work. You know, taking a look at James's post and in, in the add-in that just allows you to highlight some code and and you just click on hey add, add the oxygen tags to this particular code and in, in the comments and uh, it's it's definitely time saving for a lot of different use cases. Yeah, and I think that, to me, definitely speaks to, at least in the early stages, where I think it can benefit, especially those of us in data science and engineering or the, the merge of those worlds the most, where, yeah, going back to the shiny example, my tagline's always been, it's never just shiny. And you just put that in motion with, like you said, getting that custom JavaScript for Reactable. So I could see when you have to branch out a little bit, so to speak, bring in a different functionality, if you're coming from a different language or more verbose JavaScript, or maybe it's an API snippet, that JADGPD can be that that way to minimize the time of you hunting around Stack Overflow or hunting around Google results or GitHub repos. It's, I mean, the base, I don't know all the ins and outs of language models and especially how it's implemented here but it has basically been crawling the entire web of text and trying to assemble all this at once. Like that seems daunting in and of itself, but if it leads me to productivity enhancements, who am I to turn it down? Now, of course, you did the right thing and your team did the right thing by, of course, vetting the response before you put it in production. You don't want to go willy-nilly with this, but that does get to, you know, you and I have that, and many in our community would have that kind of check in our mind before we put that in. But to our, maybe our crowd that's in, you know, education, like you said, especially in the early years, I have a son who's about to start middle school next year. Does he know about this yet? I haven't told him, but if he finds out through a friend, he's going to try using this to sneak out a, a paper or sneak out a a short essay. Now I'm going to have to vet this. Hopefully, like you said, some of these tools out there to detect whatever something's been created by this will be more robust so that I can run this because I know if he gets his hands on this, who knows what might happen. 
<laughs> exactly. This is so going to be a thing where I'm going to be, you know, an old man saying, back in my day, oh, yeah. when I decided not to start a four-page paper until 11 p.m. and I had to stay in the <laughs> library till 3 a.m. and I could have just asked ChatGPT to do it. Um, yeah, it'll definitely be a, probably a, some back in my day ranting to come for me. Yeah. So, uh, heck, back in my day, we didn't even have internet to help write papers. Ha ha. Yeah. But, um, we don't need to hear about old man stories from Eric here, but needless to say, we will be watching this space immensely because it is going to be a big impact on not just the tech sector, but I can definitely see data science taking this on in different ways, especially on the engineering side. We'll have to see how it does with other examples, but again, it's getting an absolute boatload of additional training data with the, with the uptake it has. And as you alluded to earlier, we still have yet to see how OpenAI is going to monetize this. Uh, apparently, they have plans in the works. And apparently, some very big, uh, prominent companies or influencers in the tech sector are trying to get into this or have already gotten into this. So it's a space that we're going to be watching whether we like it or perhaps not, it's going to have an impact down the road. But in the end, I think if it can help your productivity to get your job done better, why not? So just best use responsibly. <laughs> now we can think of chat GPT is kind of that end product or that end result of what I'm sure has been immense work to get there. I mean, you don't just develop something like this overnight. Well, in the world of AI and ML, typically the tail end, like I said, of this model being deployed or that deployment itself, now as in recent years, that's been called ML ops, that can be a difficult hurdle. Uh, I've, I've experienced it a little bit in the past and I know many others have that listened to the show. Well, last year we covered major advancements created in the ML ops space, especially for both R and Python users, where Posit has been working on streamlining model deployment and orchestration, of course, with tidy models, but more specifically using great new packages like Vetiver that are wrapping existing great packages like Plumber to get your model as an API. Well, if you've been wondering how this ML ops world or this, this paradigm fits in the bigger picture of a machine learning project. Well, we've got a terrific write-up to talk about in our second highlight, which is authored once again by our author of the chat GPT tools package, James Wade. He titled this ML Ops, the whole game. I really like these kind of examples because maybe you hear in various blog posts or even us talking about this last year, and you're wondering, well, I'm still new to all this. Just give me like that map or that big picture of how I might put this in a typical project that involves machine learning from start to finish. James does a terrific job of this. So Mike, why don't you take us through those steps in the process that James outlines Sure. So James uh, breaks out the whole sort of end-to-end -end model development, deployment, and monitoring lifecycle into those three sort of high-level uh, 
categories of, of building your model first and doing things like uh, splitting the data set right into a training and test set, doing some bootstrapping. If you're, you're going to be doing some cross-validation downstream, um, all of the pre-processing for maybe converting uh, numeric variables into categorical variables. He has a couple different recipes um, There's a that apply statistical transformations to numeric predictors in the data, one called Step Yeo Johnson, which I actually was not familiar with, and I am going to most certainly look into that from the recipes package uh, after this. And it looks like it's a power transformation to help normalize data by making it more symmetric and re reducing the influence of outliers, which if you've ever worked with real world data, that is always an issue. An issue. Um, and it's just really nice to see James put together this blog post and have some sort of end-to-end -end recipe, uh, no pun intended, for the entire life cycle of your model. Um, and onto the model deployment phase, this is where the vetiver package comes in. And I know that you know we've talked about this many times on this podcast, but but the tidy models, vetiver, and pin pack pins packages really come together to create an ecosystem for accomplishing you know what James calls here the, the quote unquote whole game. And I know that's that's large thanks to Max Kuhn, Julius Silgi, and a ton of other folks on the Posit team and outside of the Posit team who have helped develop these packages for us, whether it just be one pull request or, or the folks who are, are really putting together and maintaining these packages. Um, for a lot of us who have been building models in a real world corporate setting for years, uh, we had to sort of roll our own oh, ML ops, nice. right? And here, <laughs> and and here's my second, back in my day, uh, we didn't even have the term ML ops, right? And uh, we didn't have the plumber package to quickly turn a model into an API. <laughs> That could be pinged. So it's amazing that we have these tools at our disposal now. Um, I would say that the our ecosystem at this point is on par, you know, if not uh, slightly ahead in some aspects, maybe along the lines of model monitoring and model deployment, um, as the Python ecosystem, right, which has gotten most of the buzz for productionizing machine learning models uh, over the last few years. So it's great to see. The R ecosystem catching up, and uh, you know, if you are not necessarily familiar with all of the steps that come after just building the model on your local desktop, um, the Vetiver package is a great place to start for deploying that model. And what it allows you to do is uh, interact with uh, the pins package as well to create multiple versions of that particular model, because we know that if we are managing our models well, uh, the data that hits those models may change over time, and those models may, need to be refreshed and, and retuned, um, refitted, to ensure that those models are making the most accurate predictions for your business, giving the, the changes that are coming into the, the data that's hitting those models. Um, and obviously, if we are using Posit Connect, uh, we have access to really easily you pin these models to what's called a pins board, um, which allows us to, to easily take a look and, and version um, all of the different versions of our models that would be on that board. And then finally, 
what we can also do on Posit Connect or other places, if you prefer to deploy your model outside of Posit Connect, is to create that that model API using that Plumber package as well, which has some really nice integrations with the Vetiver package that are these simple one-liner functions that will write uh, your API for you, even write a Docker file for you if you need it. Vetiver write Docker is literally a function that creates a Docker file. Um, so it's it's really incredible the functionality that some of these packages have and just how easy they make our life nowadays. And uh, the, the post sort of wraps up with model monitoring as well, which uh, there's again a one-liner Vetiver plot metrics which allows you to over time, you know, whether that be on a daily basis, uh, however often you're retraining your model to take a look at the accuracy by day or by month, however often that model is getting retrained um, to really manage your model and have a nice view of how that model is performing over time and maybe helping you make decisions on whether that model needs to be retrained today or, or we're good for the next week, we're good for the next month. Um, and, and that's really something that I think was a pretty big weakness um, in, in the ecosystem before. I think it was a really big missing piece, the, the model monitoring aspect. And uh, it's a really important piece to ensure that you're not just throwing a model out there and uh, allowing it to get hit for, for months and years without making any changes to it at all. So it's again, it's really nice to have some of these tools that at our disposal. And I really appreciate James taking the time to, to sort of put this holistic blog post together that really displays the the end-to-end life cycle here that's complete, not only with uh, a lot of narrative around how this all fits together, but plenty of our code as well. Yeah, this I cannot underscore enough. Having these convenient ways to deploy and monitor are going to make even just my own, my team's life so much easier as we develop more ML models based in R. I, yeah, my, the back in my day, the story coming from me is that I did have to stitch together this entire thing of model versioning and model metric monitoring, and I did a poor job of it. I tried my best, by golly, I did. But I remember trying to hack away at Amazon S3 bucket tags to act like a version number and then trying to write an internal package to scrape all that and then show it up in the shiny app to say you're choosing version 0.1 or 0.2 or 0.3. It was all clunky as heck. I boy, but I sure gave it the old college try. But now with Vetiver, it is going to be literally just a function call away. And now it would be easy for a company like Posit to only optimize this tooling for their professional product as a way to quote unquote, get users into it. But no, you're not confined to Posit Connect. You're not confined to any of that. You could dockerize this, like you said, with that little function call and throw it on whatever model hosting platform you like. It could be anywhere. Once you can run a Docker container, your possibilities grow exponentially where you host it which will make many of those teams in the DevOps, especially the ops side of your ML tooling, very happy that they get that flexibility. So kudos to Posit for always making sure that you're not locked in, vendor lock-in, so to speak, to their products to actually take advantage of all this functionality. Because pins, a pin board can be hosted in many different places, not just Posit Connect, it can be an S3 bucket, it can be on Azure, it can be many, many places, even a simple web interface, like it can be anywhere. So I think this post 
is again your your gateway into seeing how the, all this works and then you have the leeway to double click so to speak into these different parts and experiment to your liking but again james did an excellent job to put all this together with one of my favorite open data sets of Palmer Penguins, because I'm a Penguin fan, as many of you know. My daughter is very into Penguins right now, too. So this was very, very topical. If she could if she could read, and uh, she, would, she would have absolutely loved this post, but we're still working on that. Well, you know, in the inevitable time that she needs a computer, talk to me, because I know some Penguin-themed things that she could use on that. Hint, hint. Thank you very much. It sounds like we got lots to talk about after the show. Of course we do. <laughs> We're not quite done yet of our highlights, are we? So our last highlight cracks open, you know, a fundamental principle of statistics, which, of course, is the bread and butter of how R came to be in the first place. And as well as a lot of the things we're talking about in machine learning have fundamental roots in statistics. So at the core of many modeling pipelines, whether we are looking at the big ML landscape or pure statistics, is the concept of regression often implemented via linear models or logistic regression models, just to name two examples. But if we look specifically at linear regression, that's when we have a continuous outcome that's measured in a quantitative way. The model will explore ways of modeling the variability in that response based on the average or mean of that response. That's a central measure, which we'll touch on a little bit here. Now, when your response variables data and your predictor data are following that nice, normally distributed paradigm, that's where things like linear regression aren't much of an issue. They work very well there. That's what they were built upon. That's what we call a parametric assumption. But in the real world, as you alluded to earlier, Mike, not everything lines up so nicely. We might have a handful of outliers in our data or the variability in our response measure may change depending on what level of the response we're looking at. That's where another powerful technique that doesn't get a lot of attention called quantile regression can provide substantial improvements and a terrific post and video authored by data scientist and statistician Yuri Sablotsky reveals these improvements in a very accessible case study. So what Yuri has done in both the post and the video, and I definitely recommend watching the video, it's a pretty quick one, but it really explains things very well. He uses both made up data and real data sets coming from many R packages to show both through visualization and model assessment statistics, such as the AICS information criterion or AIC, that a quantile regression model, which by default, uses the median response by default, gives a meaningful improvement to model performance compared to linear regression in these situations. So the post is structured to address the common data issues one by one. He starts off by looking at the outlier issue and then progresses all the way to when you have a skewed distribution and non-similar or what we call non-homogeneous variability in the response. Again, quite common in the real world. And he uses a data set looking at wages of Europeans, I believe, to illustrate this. You can go really far with quantile regression. 
because you're not just confined to looking at that median or what we call the 50% quantile, if you will. You could look at a more accurate picture of the distribution of response itself by modeling up a grid of these quantiles going from like the 10% quantile all the way to the 90%. And you can get a very nice, concise, you might say confidence interval or band as your predictor is changing value to how that variability is being captured in your model with quantile regression. Whereas where that's going to be changing based on that predictor value, whereas the linear regression is going to have kind of a constant look at that variability, which may miss a lot of key relationships in your data. So I think this is a very underrated technique that I'm going to be keeping my eye on the next time I have a regression problem that doesn't fit the the happy-go-lucky world of normally distributed data. We often don't deal with that, especially when you have small sample sizes. And I've been down that road with some of these biomarker data sets that were only collected on a subset of patients because the procedure was quite expensive. So you can't expect 500 patients to be paying for that. It's maybe a very small subset. So how do you accurately get the model performance in those situations? That's where quantile regression, I think, can be a nice uh, asset in your toolbox. So I definitely learned a lot reading for the post and watching the video last night. So Mike, what did you see about uh, Yuri's post here that you took away from it? Yeah, one of my favorite things is that, you know, Yuri provides sort of a bullet point list at the beginning of the blog post that, that says, provides some arguments for for why quantile regression can be better than traditional linear regression. And, and that's because it's robust to outliers and influential points, does not assume um, constant variance, and does not necessarily assume normality. But he goes the next step of actually writing our code and displaying plots, proving that, showing why that is the case with quantile regression and how the performance is better with quantile regression over linear regression for uh, these certain particular cases uh, with a few different data sets, as you said. So I really appreciated that he didn't just make the argument, he actually proved the argument to us as well, which was beautiful. Um, a, a couple other things that, that I noted, you know, especially us Bayesians, you know, we know how much better we like the median than the mean. Um, and most distributions that I see on a daily basis, they're not perfectly normal. Um, so they really uh, have trouble with linear regression, or, or I guess I should say linear regression really has trouble with a lot of uh, the distributions that I work with on a daily basis. So it's just great to have additional tools in our toolbox like quantile regression and great to see it getting some press, as you said, because I, I don't see it get press too often, unfortunately. Um, you can even use sort of a cousin to, to quantile regression, you know, median regression um, with interactions via the e-means package that Yuri highlights uh, if there are groups in your data, right? If uh, every observation is not independent, which you might also call a mixed model. Um, and Yuri provides examples for Bayesian median regression as well. So there's so much in this blog post. It's, it's fairly lengthy, but there's a lot to lot to be gained on this. And if you want sort of the uh, non-blog post version of this, if you prefer consuming things uh, through, through media, such as uh, videos, that's right at the top of the blog post as well. And, and we can link to that in the highlights as well. It's a 14-minute long 
um, video that I am looking forward to watching. Uh, in addition to this, reading this blog post, uh, I'm going to plan on watching it right after this. So great job, Yuri. Yeah, great job, Yuri. And I'm going to be watching some of his other videos. He does a great job explaining other um, very can be complicated statistical concepts. And again, he's using R all the way through with both um, made up sets and also real examples to show you just how powerful these techniques are. So I'm really excited to learn more about this. You can never, I mean, in statistics, you have a, a technique for almost anything, but it can be daunting about when to use certain techniques. So knowing how to benchmark, and that actually comes to play quite nicely when we were talking about earlier, in the tidy model space and ML of trying to benchmark maybe a classification model and random force versus like a GBM or, or, you know, XG boost, a fancy one, but, you know, being able to benchmark them is really important. So even in regression, you can get that same benchmarking performance uh, type metrics as well. So I'll be, I'll be watching that certainly as we go. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would say not just benchmarking through, like tabular output, but the benchmarks that he provides through graphical yes. output, I think, you know, against the actual fitted data, I, I think is, is extremely powerful to take a look at. So if, if I take nothing away from this post, it's some of the examples of how we went about doing that. And the best part is R has made that easy to do from near the very beginning, folks. And now it's just even easier. Some of the great extensions that have been authored out there. Well, you know what else is easy? There's a whole bunch of other things to talk about. And since we were off for a bit of extended time due to yours truly a voice given away there at the end of December, I'm actually going to give a call out to the issue previous to what we're talking about today in week 51 for my additional find. And that is uh, Nicola Rini's uh, post, who's been a, a longtime contributor to Highlights in the past. She gives a terrific overview of what is the newest object-oriented programming development in the R ecosystem called R7. We've also seen presentations about this from Hadley Wickham in last year's RStudioConf, um, but this is something to watch for if you're building object-oriented tooling in R. It's still very early, but there's been fully sanctioned working groups about this effort, and Nicola does a terrific job kind of summarizing what's in it for you, what are the nuts and bolts of it, and really interesting to see from a development perspective of where this could take us. But uh, Mike, what would you like to call out in your additional find today? That's a great find. So this was uh, much anticipated, but the winners of the 2022 Apposite Table Contest have been announced, and the winner was someone who we actually covered in our weekly highlights, their winning table was covered in the highlights and the it's called the grammar of tables in Python with pandas and R with GT and uh, Karina Bartolome creates uh, these this really nice uh, shiny app that has some tab sets on it that allow you to essentially visualize the same table written in Python as, as well as written in R on a different tab and take a look at the comparisons of, of what you can do with Python when creating tables versus what you can do in R and trying to create the same table and where some of the differences lie. And, and the tables are, are strikingly similar. I mean, there's a couple of 
small noticeable differences, you know, just in terms of the, the functionality that you're able to get uh, between R and Python and those packages that create tables for you. Um, but they're incredibly similar. So it, it's, again, really powerful to see what we can do in both ecosystems. And it's really at this point, uh, in a lot of use cases, just just pick whichever programming language you, you prefer, you're most comfortable with for that particular problem set, because you can probably do it in either. One of the runners up that I will highlight um, is an incredible graphic, I guess I would call it, of the New York Times bestselling authors by Tanya Shapiro. She actually, so there, there's a list across uh, each decade from the 1960s to the, the 2010s that has, um, it, it's sort of faceted by that, that the top five authors from each decade has spark lines in there. It has a picture of each of the authors. Um, it's, it's absolutely incredible. It's like something that you would see in a magazine or a newspaper. Uh, and, and Tani Shapiro did all of this with ggplot it looks like and maybe a couple ggplot uh, extension packages like ggimage and ggtext but it's it's a stunning visual um and you know just scrolling through the honorable mentions the runners up um it, it's it's worthwhile if you are a data viz nerd like me um there's lots to see in here yeah, really excellent entries here and congratulations to everybody. And also we will have a link in the supplements of this show notes to the episode where Mike and I talked about Karina's uh, table entry in depth. It was a very fascinating discussion, but also congratulations again to everybody. It's an excellent contest that this is for now two years running and hopefully we get another year this year as well. And um a birdie tells me there'll be another contest that we know very well happening this year as well. So teaser unleashed. Well, we're not going to tease this. We actually have some great listener feedback to share. And it's actually a, a question around Mike and I's wheelhouse here. So we're going to highlight a, an email that we got from our contact page from listener David. David writes, hi, Eric and Mike. A big thank you for all that you contribute to the R community and in particular with the podcast and to the whole R Weekly team for pulling great content together. I have been listening for a while, including Eric's solo back catalog, usually while I'm out for a run or walk. Well, uh, David, kudos to you for powering through that. You, you deserve points for that. Thank you for that. <laughs> uh, David carries on. I know you both love Shiny. You're right about that. And don't shy away from tackling the contentious topics. So I'm wondering if you are aware of a web development framework like Python's Django framework for the shiny world. I ask because I'm collecting some data from lots of remote users at the moment. And Django was the quickest and easiest way to build a web interface to get the data into a SQL database, which I can then access, analyze, and visualize with R thanks to packages like DBI, or PostgreSQL, and dbplyr, et cetera. Are you aware of or thinking or planning about an R tool that provides a framework like Python's Django or Ruby's Rails? Cheers, David. Well, David, that's an excellent question. And I can tell you what I've done in the past is I've actually been able to stay in the R ecosystem and kind of stitch this together, so to speak, where maybe I have a shiny front end to a data entry like form. And then I have that talk 
to an online database that maybe is hosted on AWS or another service to put all that together and then have other apps that actually consume that data. And maybe it's only a select number of users that see that, that consumption and then do some visualizations or reporting metrics or generate other insights around that. So I'm not aware of anything off the shelf that would be right up that Django framework. But again, I've just stitched this together in Shiny itself in a, I guess, a somewhat custom way. But Mike, what, what are your thoughts on David's question here? Yeah, I think Shiny gets a reputation sometimes for just being a tool to visualize data, really just a, I guess, I don't know if you'd call that a front-end tool or, or just sort of uh just, I don't know, serving as a dashboard, but you know, as well as I do, that it's very capable and you have everything that you need there if you want to put it together to actually serve as the data collection front end as well. If that is what David is looking for, um, I can provide an example of how we did that on the Shiny Dev Series by collecting uh, COVID test data in our Shiny app, as well as displaying that data um, in a separate part of that Shiny app. So it's it's sort of uh, maybe provides both sides of what you might be looking for. I think there's probably a lot of other examples out there, but you know, it's maybe it's not always Shiny, like we say, but uh, there's definitely a way to do it. Yeah, and it, we'll have a link to that episode. We had a great time talking about that, and it was a very innovative way to collect that data with a geo kind of mapping framework on top of it. But um, you can go as simple or as complicated as you want with this. I mean, I've seen teams and even those in the open take an editable data table table and then have buttons that mimic kind of like what you call the CRUD, you know, workflow in database data entry, where you, that table has a button say like submit to database or something to that effect that then pipes it directly after some cleaning up or some sanitization all the way to wherever your database is hosted at. So I think I think the key is just knowing how you want the users to get that data in. But typically, you're going to find a way in the shiny and associated ecosystem to make that happen. But certainly, we hope we hope this is helpful. And certainly, feel free to reach back out to us if you have other questions on how you're implementing that. We definitely hope to see you have success with that workflow because it is a very important one in, in the world of software development and, and web development for sure. Absolutely. And like the packages he mentioned, DBI, our PostgreSQL, they have functions for, for not only reading the data from those databases, but also writing data to those databases. Exactly. I, I actually use that firsthand from both perspectives and a little quiz thing I did for the recent R Pharma conference. So I've, I've seen both sides of it. And like I said, David, let us know how it goes. And yeah, hopefully have good success with that. And if you want to get in touch with us, so one thing I haven't highlighted as much as I should have is that if you want to quickly send us a message via contact form, that's easy to do. We'll have the contact form directly linked in the show notes here. But if you want to find it yourself, you just go to rweekly.org. There's that little podcast link right at the very top of the page. Once you go there, that dedicated podcast page has a contact link right at the top. So feel free to use that to submit your feedback. That goes right directly to me and Mike, and we'll be sure to collect those for future episodes. So don't hesitate to reach out to us. And also, if you are listening to one of those awesome new podcast apps that you get 
at newpodcastapps.com. You can send us what's called a boostergram and have fun with your message as well. So there are lots of interesting ways to get in touch with us, and we always love hearing from all of you. Well, we've had a great time discussing all things R in this episode, so we're going to have to wrap this up a little bit, but where can you get involved? Well, as I said, go to rweekly.org. We have this particular week's issue as well as all the back catalog linked on the website. We love getting your contributions, so everything is just a pull request away. Our current draft is always available. Just send us a little edit of the draft markdown file and our curator of the week will be glad to get that in and review your request. And also we love hearing from you as well on social media where you can find me still somewhat sparingly with at the RCAST on Twitter, but I'm also at our podcast at podcastindex.social if you want to reach out to me on Mastodon. And Mike, where can the listeners get a hold of you? On Twitter, still at Mike underscore Ketchbrook, K-E-T-C-H-B-R-O-O-K, or on Mastodon at Mike underscore Thomas at Fostodon.org. Awesome, awesome. We're seeing more in the R community reach out to that platform. We always love hearing from you from wherever you're connecting to us. And I also, this was meant for an episode last year, but I never got to it, but I, in the at the end of the year, I always think of, you know, giving thanks to the people that helped me along the way, especially in this podcasting journey. So I want to give a quick shout out to my great friends at Jupiter Broadcasting, who have, again, enabled me to do some great innovative ways to reach to all of you in the art community with our weekly and my podcasting adventures. So I want to thank Chris and the team for giving me some great advice, especially last year on making this podcast even better. So I hope they have a successful 2023 as well. And if you want to hear some great talk about Linux and the development world, check out jupiterbroadcasting.com. They're a great team over there. But that's going to wrap up our episode of R Weekly, episode 105. And we'll be back with another edition of the R Weekly Highlights podcast next week.